they're kind of, to me, this next generation of politician, you know, which is really an old kind of concept, which is that our representatives should be of the people, familiar with the lives of the people they represent, not some elite privileged class who don't even have the remotely same concerns as the people that they're trying to represent. And welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. If you care about democracy in America, then you care about the upcoming election in Virginia. And before you tune out and think, yep, Lee, I don't live in Virginia, I think I'll skip it. I want you to think about the Wisconsin Supreme Court race in April and the Ohio special election this August. Most of us don't live in those states, but our attention on those elections and their successful results puts the Republicans and their increasingly extremist agenda on notice. They say, hey, Guess what? The majority of us don't believe our politicians have a right to decide what we do with our own bodies. We don't believe the minority should have the power over the majority, and we believe we should have access to the vote and that our votes should count. And the Republicans are not loving that. Right now, the governor of Virginia is a man named Glenn Youngkin, who is basically a smart DeSantis dressed in a Mitt Romney costume. He's an anti-vax, anti-choice, far-right extremist disguised as a good-natured suburban dad. But it's an act. He knew he couldn't win Virginia, a state that went to Biden by 10 points, by going full MAGA. But if he is set free, that is exactly how he is going to govern. He ran a centrist campaign to appeal to independents and swing voters, but he kept getting caught on video admitting his true plans. He pushed to make voting harder for Virginians. He's unabashedly anti-abortion and anti-LGBTQ. He believes parents, not teachers, should dictate what schools teach, especially when it comes to race and sex, and he believes that individuals should be able to veto any book in the library they deem inappropriate, even if it takes access of that book from everybody else. Right now, Youngkin is polling at around 51% in Virginia. Experts believe that his resilience in the polls is due to the fact that he hasn't pushed as many extreme policies as, say, DeSantis or Abbott. But to be clear, that's not because he doesn't want to. It's because the Democratic Senate in Virginia keeps holding him back. Virginia is one of two states in the nation with a split legislature, with Democrats holding a slim majority in the Senate and Republicans holding a narrow majority in the House, which is why the upcoming legislative election in November is so important. All 100 seats in the GOP-controlled House and all 40 seats in the Democratic-controlled Senate will be up for grabs in 2023. And these elections are going to be held in all freshly drawn districts. Of the 140 seats being contested, there is a handful in each chamber that are truly competitive. But that is enough seats to make a tremendous difference not only to the future of Virginia, but to the fate of the nation. The GOP could take the Senate. The Democrats could flip the House. Both parties believe they have a viable path to controlling both chambers. If the Democrats win, they will have one more chamber to protect Virginians from Governor Youngkin's extremist ideology. If the Republicans win, then Youngkin will finally have full control to implement the extremist agenda he's been waiting to unleash. Given the opportunity, experts say he'll basically be able to turn Virginia into Florida overnight. And I don't think I need to tell you that one Florida is enough. So today we're going to talk all things Virginia what you should know, why you should care about this election, and why this is where we should be putting our focus right now. To do that, I have invited two different Democratic candidates on the November ballot to join us, Senate candidate Danica Rome and House candidate Jessica Anderson. 
Danica is the current Virginia representative in the House of Delegates, a journalist turned politician who made history in 2017 as the first openly transgender person elected and seated in a U.S. state legislature. And Jessica is a first-time candidate, a mother, wife, and community activist. Jessica, like Danica, is a lifelong Virginian who found her way to politics because she could no longer sit on the sidelines. So without further ado, please welcome my first guest, three-term delegate for the 13th Virginia House District, winner of multiple awards for Best Local Public Servant, and state Senate candidate for Virginia's 30th District, Danica Rome. Welcome, Danica. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, thank you for joining me. I've been following your career since you won your election, defeating that 13-term Republican who'd been known for consistently sponsoring anti-LGBTQ plus legislation. So high five to you on that. Now, obviously, we're having you on today to get people excited about your campaign for Senate, but also to draw attention to the incredible importance of this election in Virginia. What do you think people who don't live in Virginia should be thinking about this election? Why is it essential that we're paying attention to it? Well, if you're a voter anywhere in the country right now, or you just care about politics anywhere in the country, the first thing to know is that voting rights are at stake here in Virginia. Before we get to everything else, if gerrymandering is an issue to you, if congressional representation and all the things that go along with it, voting rights are a really big deal. And when we had our Democratic trifecta between 2020 and 2021, we were able to pass about a dozen or so pieces of legislation that allowed Virginia to become to go from being one of the most difficult states in the country to vote in to now being one of the most accessible states for legal adult citizens to be able to cast a ballot here in the entire country. And because of that, you've seen a lot of change. And what we also know is that, for example, what happens in Virginia in the off years absolutely affects the direction that the country goes in the following year. And we're not a perfect bellwether, not, not, not at all. But at the same time, we also do know that we are a microcosm of the country as a whole. And when you're dealing with environmental issues that happen in Virginia, they affect areas nearby. If you don't think that environmental issues in one place affect another, all you need to have been is to experience the East Coast of this year all through June when we were having haze over our entire skies because of Canadian wildfires that had gotten out of control. And when you just look at the very macro issue of climate change mitigation with the things that we have to do, we know that at the very local level, all of us have to do our part. And so in Virginia, we passed the Clean Economy Act when we had our Democratic trifecta. We passed the Clean Cars Bill where we got Virginia to be the second state to, to sign on to tougher standards for accelerating our adaptation to electric vehicles. And we're also really making sure right now in Virginia that we are the last state in the South that is actually allowing you to be able to access your right to safe legal abortion care. We know for a fact that if a Republican government has a trifecta, this is the first thing on the chopping block. This is the first thing to go. And we also know that LGBTQ rights that are under assault nationwide to tune of more than 500 bills filed by Republican legislators this year, that is on the chopping block next year as well. And keep in mind, the legislators who are filing these bills, attacking abortion rights, attacking trans rights, attacking the environment, attacking voting rights, these are not legislators who are prioritizing the things that they tell people they care about. Like the, when they say like, oh, well, you know, it's really about jobs. It's really about this. It's really about... It's like, these are not people who are filing 500 transportation funding bills. These are not people who were voting in favor of Medicaid expansion. These are not folks who were making sure that 
you have you know a, a fully refundable earned income tax credit, for example. The issues that we are dealing with here are people who are being driven by socially ideological you know uh, viewpoints, or simply put, they're saying like, oh, well, my donor base, my activist base, this is what they care about. Whereas the reality is this month alone in August of the 600 plus doors I've already knocked this month, I don't hear the right wing social issues coming up at the doors. You know what I hear at the doors? I hear, hey, Danica, how's Route 28 coming along? You know what I hear at the doors? Hey, let's talk about teacher pay at the doors, making sure that teachers can afford to live in the same communities that they teach in in the first place. That's the sort of stuff that I hear when I'm knocking doors from NASA's. We got to, got to, got to focus on people's day-to-day quality of life. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, it's really what you said about the democratic trifecta and how much you guys got done when you had that kind of power to help voting rights, to help LGBTQ plus issues. This really comes down to the battle for Virginia's future, but also sort of like what we're saying we want for the rest of the country. Your governor right now, Glenn Youngkin, he wants Republican control of the state that really hasn't gone for a GOP presidential candidate since George W. Bush. And what we want is for the Democrats to retake enough seats to defend everything from abortion to voting rights. But it's also as you said, about LGBTQ plus rights, about book banning, about education, about public schools, about taking care of the constituents from everything from healthcare to hunger. And I know that Governor Youngkin wants control over your state so that he gets that free reign to bring in all those uh, extreme positions that are on his wish list, which is why him and his allies are pouring so much money into these elections. Not because, as you said, the people at the doors are like, boy, I really want to talk about, you know, who's in what bathroom, but because they think those are winning issues for them. The goal is to give him and the Republican donor class power, but also to boost his national profile since he hasn't seemed to rule out a presidential bid in 2024. So we just have to be really serious about what's on the line here. Now, I know you're making a move from the House to the Senate. What inspired you to make that change? So the reason I'm running for the state Senate is, number one, I believe I can do a great job in the state Senate for my lifelong home community of Western Prince William County and Greater Manassas. And, you know, of the 18 precincts in my House of Delegates district, 16 of them were drawn into the state Senate district. But my House district, after redistricting, was carved into three different districts. So in order for me Mm. to continue serving most of my constituents, I had to run for the state Senate. And the reality is I've delivered for them over and over and over again to the tune of 41 of my bills passed into law all with bipartisan support, including 12 to feed hungry kids. And one of those bills, HB 5113, that we passed in uh, 20, during the 2020 special session, that's now led to the city of Manassas and the city of Manassas Park providing universal free school breakfast and free school lunch for every single student in, all, in both of those cities, no questions asked, along with 37 Prince William County schools, which includes a lot in the greater Manassas portion of Prince William County. And because of that, we've been able to eliminate the idea of school meal debt even occurring at a lot of these schools where just a lot of people need a lot of hands up. Yeah. You know what? I want to tell people who aren't familiar with Virginia and don't know your districts as well as you do, because this is a, you know, this is a national show. And I want people to know that what Danica's saying is actually a really huge deal. She successfully passed 41 bills 
through the General Assembly, all with bipartisan support. And what she's talking about is these 10 bills that would feed hungry children, two more that fed hungry adults. She had legislation that included things like making sure children who have outstanding school debt aren't banned from eating at school or participating in extracurricular activities. In some cases, they had school officials throwing out meals that had already been served to children because their parents hadn't paid their meal debts. And Danica made it incredibly clear that we shouldn't be punishing or shaming children for their parents' income. And I think you said it beautifully when you said, simply put, school meal debt should not exist in the first place. And if the federal government won't continue universal free school meals, and that's a policy that the Republicans have been very clear that they want to cut, we have to make sure that we find a way that no child goes hungry. And I feel like I feel like it's so essential that we understand that this is what government is supposed to do. It's supposed to look out for its people. This idea that we can't give free meals to everyone because why should we pay for everyone to eat or why should we pay for rich kids to eat? First of all, rich kids are not taking these free lunches. And even if they were, who cares? When did we decide that feeding hungry people was a waste of our money? And I just, I think that this is the kind of stuff I love. This is the kind of stuff that people around the country love, that you're passing legislation that people actually care about. You are going outside the box and being a type of politician that people can believe in and see you getting things done. And I think that's essential that people understand that because if we had more of yous around the country, I think people would believe in politicians more. Well, you know, there's a Newsweek headline from June 16th that says Republicans plan to cut free school lunches. Now, that's what they want to do at Cap- on Capitol Hill. So when you are seeing what we've done in my district here, where we've successfully advocated for all schools that are eligible for the community eligibility provision to have to participate in it by passing my bill to do that. And then you s- contrast that with the Republican plan and the Republican plan to cut food for children. Ask yourself, if we are going to spend our tax dollars on anything, what is more important than ending childhood hunger? No child should ever be hungry. Just that's that the idea of school meal debt is is a failing in society that it could possibly even exist. And right now I've been knocking doors in the Point of Woods neighborhood in the city of Manassas. Can I tell you how many homes over and over and over again, where I have mentioned this exact issue of universal free school meals being provided in the city and parents and students alike. I've got kids telling me, thank you. And I have parents saying, that's such a huge help for our family because this is saving families up to $1,000 per student per school year. I talk about what I'm doing very on a very hyper-local level here because when you extrapolate that out to a national level and you see congressional Republicans trying to cut free school meals for children in need, this is the so-called self-described pro-life party wanting to make it harder for children to eat food. And then they'll say, oh, well, it's parents' responsibility. They're supposed to be providing this for the first place. And when we provided a bill this year to provide universal free school meals for all public school students, the education committee chairman said, well, What if it's the millionaire pulling up in a Jaguar into uh, the school and kid getting out? I'm like, if you're using that as an excuse to make sure that a family making $46,000 a year instead of $45,000 who doesn't qualify for free and reduced meals in the first place doesn't have to deal with this. It is such a BS argument. It is something that I just so wholeheartedly reject the idea that you're using this very very narrow idea of like, oh, well, some people have means, which means that we're going to have to make sure that people who need help aren't going to get it. 
I find that to be ridiculous. It, it, it was just such a wrong, I don't even know how to put it, just such a wrong argument for them to make. And you're now seeing state by state by state across the country adopting universal free school meals where you have either Democratic trifectors or in Pennsylvania's case, you have a Democratic House of Representatives, you have a Republican state Senate and a Democratic governor, they came together for universal free breakfast. And so if we have this existing precedent where a Republican governor in Vermont signed legislation to law for universal free school meals there that was passed by Democratic led uh, you know, chambers in their General Assembly, then you have to ask, what was the holdup here in Virginia? Well, the holdup here in Virginia was party line politics in the House of Delegates that killed this on a party line vote. So if we want to change that, well, I'll just say to your audience nationwide, you show me Democratic control of the Virginia State Senate, which we currently have, and Democratic control of the House of Delegates, which we need to have. And I'll show you a, a state budget next year that we put on the governor's desk that has universal free school meals on it. And then our Republican governor will have to make a choice at that point. Will he do what Phil Scott did in Vermont, or is he going to be the first governor in the country to veto it? Well, you'd think that feeding you know children is something we could all agree on. <laughs> You would think. You Honestly, would think. I think, yeah. I know, you would think. But you know, you also passed legislation that you couldn't sue. They had school districts suing parents yes, for right. school meal debt. You passed legislation so that schools could receive private donations to pay off children's school debt yep. and even make that food that was going to go to waste at the end of the day available to students. I love these kind of ideas because what you're saying is we're thinking of the people. We're thinking of the children. What's the best way to get food in these children's mouths? And that is how government should be thinking. Yeah, And a lot of this is based on what we have successfully done in Prince William County schools, because we don't shame our kids here for having school meal debt. Now, we had $400,000 worth of school meal debt in Prince William County at the end of the school year, despite more than a third of our schools now being enrolled in CEP, which means that those schools have $0 in school meal debt, which to me really displays the totality of the problem that we're trying to tackle here. And it's my constituent from Gainesville, Dell Settle, who runs the nonprofit organization Settle the Debt, which is entirely designed to pay off school meal debts. What we've done in Virginia, even without enacting universal free school breakfast, we have laid out a blueprint for state legislators across the country right now to just go to lis.virginia.gov, look at my legislation, look at my 12 bills that we've passed, and then you go, hey, maybe we can do this in my state. And so that if you are a Democratic member where the Republicans have a majority, I have found success getting you know members on board on both parties for all of these bills. The most part was my first year in office. The Republicans had me on the kill list. They killed all my bills, including my school meals bill. And so what we ended up doing beginning my second year was we started taking the ideas of my omnibus school meals bill and we started introducing it paragraph by paragraph as its own bill. And we just broke it down, broke it down, broke it down. And one of the things that we found in the General Assembly is that sometimes bite size is the best way to go. But at the same time, this is what a successful legislator does. A successful legislator learns the ropes and says, okay, what can I do to get this over the finish line? Should I be the ideologue who's going to say, all or nothing, I'm not going to compromise, I'm not going to do this? Or are you going to be the results-oriented pragmatist who's going to say, well, they're not letting me get this across right now, but here's what I can get across. And then you take that and you build on it and you build on it and you build on it. Here's another great example of that. 
it took me my first five years in office fighting to make sure that large private employers uh, providing health insurance would have to cover state-of-the-art prosthetic devices for amputees and people in the limb loss community. It took me five years years of fighting for this. I tried to have all insurers do it, but the final bill that we got across the finish line last year was for large private employers who provide uh, health insurance to have to cover it. It's something, it's something we can build on. And the people who are going to be helped on that, we're talking about 10 to $30,000 devices that they're going to have to replace the functionality of their arm or leg. That's life changing for people. And the best piece of advice I was given uh, right before I was sworn in, a well-known former U.S. senator uh, had uh, asked me to come speak to her um, at the Kennedy Center one day uh, in D.C. And I spoke to her and I said, hey, in your role as a former senator, what should I know as a legislator? What's the, what's the best piece of advice you can give me? And she said, never give up on a good idea. And Hillary Clinton was right. Aww. Oh, man. Well, I'm telling you, I think you're the perfect example of what you just said about a blueprint for the rest of the nation. They always say that politics starts locally, right? Like you're doing something in your district and then that can expand to your state. And then if that's done well, it becomes a beta test to make it national. So what you're talking about with school lunches or you're talking about helping people with limb differences or the work you're doing with making sure our schools are more inclusive and we can have our own hairstyle, our own religious head covering or whatever, that we all have a part without singling out or stigmatizing people. You start that locally and it works. It expands and expands and expands. You look at a representative like you and you say that works and then we can grow it and ask for more representatives like that. Now, most people know you as the first out and seated transgender state legislator in American history, but being trans doesn't mean that that's your only issue. I mean, obviously you've been very focused on childhood hunger, on education, on voting legislation, but you got elected the first time focusing on fixing a local road, which you mentioned earlier. You said traffic congestion hurts my constituents' quality of life, and I'm determined to help fix it. And every minute someone is sitting in traffic means that's one less minute they're spending with their family or community. And since this is a national show, we're not going to talk too much about Route 28 or the Interstate 66 interchange, but I think the important thing here to note is that you identified a problem in your community. You focused on fixing that problem, and now you're getting it fixed. And I read a thing that said if your original lawn sign had said, fix Route 28 now, you could now have lawn signs that said, Route 28 is being fixed. <laughs> and I think oh, that's so essential. Route 28 now. Yeah, yeah fixing Route 28 <laughs> now, right? If all of our representatives around the country did what you did, then I think, like I said before, people would be like, yeah, government can be a force for good. They can do things. The piece of advice I give to legislators, yard signs don't win campaigns, okay, just bluntly. But if you're going to have them and you're going to put them out there, which we do, you know, it's part of advertising. It's part of allowing people to, who support you to, you know, show their support for you and stuff. Have a message on there that's not just your name and what you're running for. Have something that your campaign is about. When Barack Obama was running for office, what was his slogan? Hope and change. Yeah. It would, they would have one at a time. It would, this one sign would say hope. Another one sign would say change, right? And as awful as the presidency of Donald Trump was, you knew what his slogan was immediately, you know, and that it wasn't a good thing. But at the same time, we knew what it was, right? And even now, you know, Joe Biden has, uh, you know, tried to brand himself with build back better, right? And so at least he's got something. And so my slogan this campaign is, fixing roads, feeding kids. 
this way, if you have any question about what it is that I'm running to do, I'm running to fix roads and feed kits. And one extra thing we've added to that is protecting our land. As in my other role as executive director of Emerge Virginia, where I train Democratic women uh, to run for office, one of the things I try to get across here in terms of messaging is give people something tangible. Make it so that you can just see this happening in your community or it's something where it's just like, hey, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me. Something that people associate your campaign with. In my first campaign, I never said I'm trans, but I really care about fixing around 20. I said, no, no, I'm trans and is the, the, the improv theory. Yes, and, right? And it was just, I'm not going to apologize for who I am. I'm not going to apologize for my identity. I'm like, yes, this is who I am. And I do very much care about civil rights. I do very much care about protecting trans kids from being bullied in school. Absolutely, I do. And I also can talk to you all day about innovative intersection designs to fix Rollins Ford Road and Route 28 and why we secured $33 million between the two of them to get those projects done. I can tell you, you know, like, I, I can talk about a lot of issues. I can talk about why the freedom of the press as a reporter turned legislator means a lot to me, which is why I authored Virginia's Shield Law to protect reporters from being jailed for protecting the identity of confidential sources. There's a lot. And in, when you're a news reporter, you have to know a lot about a lot. Well, when you're in the legislature, you got to know a lot about a lot. That's part of it. And so I like to think that the example that we've managed to show here in Virginia is that you can be who you are, be that well, and thrive because of who you are, not despite it, and not for what discriminatory politicians tell you you're supposed to be. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we can see how you became a role model and political rising star. But if you wouldn't mind, like, let's circle back a little to what you just mentioned, your role as a prominent trans woman, which is something you've never shied away from. You are, like you said, who you are. No matter your politics, you it ends up putting you at the front line, right, for protecting the rights of transgender people in your state and beyond. Because Virginia, like many other states across America right now, is already limiting or looking to limit trans rights, whether that's laws around who can play sports or what bathroom we can use, all the way to accessing medications or proper medical care. So what's happening to our trans citizens in America is repulsive. And I would love to have your take on Republicans using trans people as their new scapegoat. So let's just talk about what happened in Virginia this year. On the House floor this year, for the first time since I have been a member of the Virginia House of Delegates in my six, my six sessions in Richmond, they actually allowed anti-trans legislation to make it to the House floor. And of those two bills, knowing fully well, both bills would die in the Senate. They knew that was going to happen. They wanted to message on these and they are. They have already sent the mailers in, into my district. I know. The first one was their bill to ban trans girls from be, and trans women from being able to play on girls and women's sports teams. Well, when you have trans representation, you know what ends up coming with that is that means that you probably know a little bit more about the issue than the person trying to discriminate against trans people in the first place because, well, you've lived it. You understand this <laughs> bill. I asked the patron of the athletes bill, said, now when I'm reading this section of the bill, it says that a physician, a physician's assistant, or a nurse practitioner shall perform a physical examination that would along with what is currently in the code, now also include an examination to determine biological sex. How will that be performed? And three times I asked a version of this question. And the patron of the bill, Karen Greenhall from Virginia Beach, said, oh, the way it's done now, just the however they do it now, the, that's fine. The only time that someone 
as a, an adult who's a medical professional is actually examining the genitalia of children who want to compete in sports teams is in a case-by-case basis of whether they have a hernia issue. They do not subject children, including survivors of sexual assault, to physical examinations of their genitalia to determine whether they can play field hockey. That is not a thing. And the fact that they want to subject 1.26 million students across Virginia, any of them who want to play school sports at a public school, they would subject them to this all because nine kids in all of Virginia the previous school year wanted to play sports with their friends. That was the first part. Now let's move on to the second part here. When we get into the college part, because they love mentioning, oh, Leah Thomas won these swimming uh, competitions. So obviously we have to do something about this. I said, okay. Now when I'm reading this bill, and I had a question at this point, the patron would no longer take my question. So I asked questions of the education committee chairman. So now as I'm reading this bill, it specifically states that no Virginia public college or university shall play against another Virginia private university or college if that private school is not in compliance with the rest of this bill regarding banning trans women from uh, playing on sports teams. So by the way I am reading this, does this mean that the Virginia Commonwealth University and George Mason University men's basketball teams would be prohibited from playing the University of Richmond, which is a private university, in the Atlantic 10 tournament? And the answer was yes. The bill was drafted in such a stupid way, in such a (laughs) maliciously uh, bigoted way to go after trans people that when they said that if a trans woman were to even try out for a club team, that men's and women's sports alike would no longer be able to compete against that other school for simply allowing tryouts for clubs. This shows you this bill was not an idea that was concocted by one of the legislators. And it was not an idea that was concocted to go through the division of legislative services attorneys, which is basically the attorneys who put the legalese to the bills. No, no, no. This came from a national organization that was handing these things out like lollipops at a bank. And they said, oh, oh, I want one of these. I want one of these. And they never even considered what the hell was in the stupid bill in the first place. So what came out of it? What came out of it is a bill that would have required George Mason University and VCU to forfeit tournament games in the Atlantic 10 against the University of Richmond. You know what happened months after that bill died because of the state Senate? Actually, not even months, just very recently afterward. The George Mason University men's basketball team defeated the University of Richmond (laughs) men's basketball team in the A-10 tournament. Had that bill been law the prior year, GMU would have had to forfeit that game. The fact of the matter is the Republicans forced this bill that was not ready for prime time. They forced it to pass in the the House so that they could have a talking point for their mail program this year, which they have now used, which they are now sending out pieces saying, Glenn Youngkin needs, insert Republican here, to defend girls' sports. So biological boys aren't playing against girls. 
the bills that they were dealing with were absolutely ridiculous. Then the other bill that they allowed to come forward was to forcibly require trans kids to be outed at home regardless of the safety of the child if they expressed, and this is their words, gender incongruence, which means that they were treating trans, being trans as a disciplinary issue equal to that of hurting someone else as opposed to being yourself. And this would have directly, and this is not just me saying this, we got the Education Committee chairman on third reading of this bill on the on crossover day to even admit, yes, this bill is not ready for prime time because the bill would actually actively interfere with a counselor's ability to work with their student. That straight up, we, we got that concession out of them. And then of course the bill died in the Senate. The arguments that they have made on this are so bunk. And here's the kicker for all of this. In 2017, my predecessor put in a bill, HB 1612, that would have directed school principals to have to out trans kids at home. This is the same bill that had the bathroom bill and all that attached to it, which is what the governor wants to do with his model policies. Did they not realize that my predecessor lost by nearly eight points to the first out and seated trans state legislator when this contrast was right in front of the voters and everyone knew I was trans and my predecessor was the self-described chief homophobe of Virginia. And we had this debate. Now he would not debate me, but we had it through the press and we had it through public and everything else. My side won. And then in 2019, they ran another anti-trans candidate. In 2021, they ran another anti-trans candidate against me. And now 2023, four campaigns in a row. Now that I'm running for state Senate, they're running another anti-trans candidate against me, expecting a different result because now this time the governor has money. So the governor gets to act in the role of daddy Warbucks in order to distribute money to whichever Republican city they so chooses. If they think this is going to result in a different outcome, because, oh, well, we're going to put an emphasis on early voting this time. They're wrong. We have already done the work in this district to make sure that in less than a month from now, when the first ballots of this race are cast on September 22nd, our people are going to show up. And my ask to your viewers, to your listeners today, is to help us get our folks out to the polls this year to make sure that we have a resounding victory here in the outskirts of Northern Virginia so that we can demonstrate across the country that discrimination is still a disqualifier and that we win with our message of being inclusive leaders who put constituent service first. I also think like you're the perfect example of we need more people in government to represent more people. If there's trans person there, you're going to be like, I read this bill differently than someone who's not trans. You're saying these bills aren't even coming from the legislators half the time. They're coming from the powers that be with the money, right? That representation matters. And you can see from this basketball example that like you hurt yep. one group. You end up hurting all groups. Like you're not just targeting one little group. You end up hurting everybody, right? Your bills are dying in the Senate because the Democrats have the majority. And that's what we absolutely have to keep. So tell people how they can help you, how they can get out that vote, how they can keep not only the Senate in Virginia blue, stopping all these hideous bills from coming along, but also help them flip the house so you have one more line of defense against these people. Absolutely. Well, if you come into Western Prince William County, you get to do both of those. So along with helping me in my race, where my race is the 20th most Democratic seat out of 40 seats, so it's one of our majority makers, along with helping me, and you can visit my website, it's Danica, D-A-N-I-C-A, for statesenate.com, for spelled out, F-O-R, 
if you visit my website, you will find all the things there. If you go to actblue.com and you type my name, Danica, D-A-N-I-C-A, last name Rome, R-O-E-M, into the search engine there, you can contribute to the campaign. And if you help us out here in Western Prince William, you can also help Josh Thomas win the 21st House Delegates District, which is one of the most competitive in the entire state. You can help Travis Nemhard win that 22nd House Delegates District, which is one of the other most competitive races in the entire state. There is so much that you can do just here in Western Prince William County alone. So please come on out. Please help us out. And if Josh, Travis, and I win this fall, you're going to have Democratic majorities in the state Senate and the House of Delegates where we can stop playing defense and we can go back on offense. I want to thank you for joining us today, Danica. Your time and success as a House delegate has been an inspiration for any of us who want good, competent, caring people in leadership. Clearly, you're an incredibly hardworking, you know, detail-oriented person who says she's going to do what she says she's going to do. And obviously a good human and politician out there doing good in the world. So thank you so much. And listen, everyone, please do go to those websites that Danica was talking about. What she said is true. SD30 is a battleground General Assembly district. It is a key majority making district. So we need the GOP out of those spaces. We need them completely out. We need to get the Democrats full control in the Senate and, as she said, full control in the House. So even if you're not a Virginian and you're an American who believes in democracy and human rights, please help Danica and the other candidates to expand their majority. Thanks again for coming to visit with us, Danica. I wish you nothing but success. Thank you so much for the invitation. Now we'll take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, and we'll be back to talk with Jessica Anderson and the importance of flipping the Virginia House. Today's podcast is brought to you by BetterHelp. I'm so pleased to be partnering with BetterHelp because mental health is absolutely essential to our well-being, and I know for a lot of people it can feel completely out of reach. There have been so many moments in my life where having a therapist felt like a real lifeline. Whether you're dealing with decisions around your career, your relationships, loss, isolation, or just trying to figure out what direction to walk in life, therapy can really help. Life is hard. It can be fun, it can be rewarding, it can be joyful, but can also be a struggle. And having someone to talk through those struggles with can be a real help. I got my son a therapist during the pandemic when he was basically locked at home with no social life. I finally convinced my husband to try therapy last year and now he's like, holy hell, this is amazing. Honestly, therapy is one of those things that once you start doing it, you're like, why wasn't I doing this before? So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. You don't have to go anywhere. It's completely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, spelled H-E-L-P, dot com slash politicsgirl. So we just got our newest delivery of real paper, and I can't tell you how much I love it. If you listen to this show, you know I was skeptical about toilet paper that doesn't advertise itself as fancy or plush, but I was willing to try real paper because I wanted to do my best by the earth. I had no idea we cut down tens of thousands of trees a day just to supply America with toilet paper. And when I found that out, it was incredibly depressing, which is why I really wanted to like real paper. Real is 100% bamboo, so they use a plant that grows fast, can be harvested and regenerated, and doesn't impact entire ecosystems of forests. And as it turns out, real is the best kind of eco-friendly because you don't have to sacrifice comfort to help the earth. I take my toilet paper seriously, and this TP is a legit alternative. Plus, when you add in the environmental difference, it's kind of an upgrade. 
Real is shipped straight to your door in 100% recyclable plastic-free packaging. And if you have it on subscription like we do, you never have to worry about lugging it home from the store. Real is also partnered with One Tree Planted. So every box of Real you buy is funding reforestation efforts across the country. So while other toilet paper cuts down trees, Real is actively helping to replace them. Real paper is available in easy, hassle-free subscriptions or for one-time purchases on their website. All orders will be delivered to your door with free shipping. When you head to realpaper.com politicsgirl and sign up for a subscription using my code politicsgirl, you will also get 30% off your first order. That's R-E-E-L-P-A-P-E-R dot com slash politicsgirl and enter the promo code politicsgirl to get 30% off your first order plus free shipping. Join my family in making a change for good this year and switch to real paper. Real. It's paper for the planet. Today's pod is sponsored by our friends at Thrive Cosmetics. Every time I talk about Thrive, I go on and on about their Liquid Lash Extension Mascara, which I am obsessed with. But today I'm going to talk about their Sheer Strength Hydrating Lip Tint. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I am not a lipstick girl. I never mastered it and because my lips are pretty big, when I put color on them, it feels like they're the only thing I can see on my face. Usually I just use a bit of gloss, but that's why the hydrating lip tint is so good. It hydrates your lips with just a tiny bit of color that goes on evenly and lasts up to six hours. It's comfortable enough to wear all day, comes in six different shades and is lightweight and non-sticky. Plus, it makes your lips visibly softer and smoother over time. And you know I love a product with a cause. Thrive Cosmetics spells their name C-A-U-S-E for a reason. Part of their mission is that every product purchased supports organizations that help our communities thrive. Things like battling domestic abuse, homelessness, and cancer. The products are 100% vegan and cruelty-free and made with clean, skin-loving ingredients with no parabens, sulfates, or phthalates. But you have to try Thrive Cosmetics to see for yourself. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order when you visit thrivecosmetics.com slash politicsgirl. That's Thrive Cosmetics, spelled C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash politicsgirl for 20% off your first order. And don't forget to throw in that mascara. I swear, it's the best. So Politics Girl has a new sponsor, Honey Love. And boy, do I wish I'd had their product when I tried to fit into my birthday dress a couple weeks ago. Honey Love has revolutionized compression technology, so you no longer have to feel like you're suffocating while wearing effective shapewear. Now, the men in my audience might not understand what I'm talking about, but if you or a woman in your life has ever tried to wrangle yourself into skin-tight shapewear so you look and feel better in your clothes, that's where we're at. I recently got Honey Love's Superpower Shorts with sculpt and smooths from the stomach to the thigh by offering just the perfect amount of compression. And unlike other shapewear, Honey Love is designed to work with your body, not against it. It has targeted compression technology that distinguishes between the areas you want more support and the areas you need less compression. Its signature X targets your midsection without squeezing out all your natural curves. So you end up less sausage and more sculpted. And you don't have to worry about it rolling down thanks to the flexible boning or about getting a flat butt because Honey Love has boost bands at the back that allow your booty to do what your booty is supposed to do. And if sculpt wear isn't for you, Honey Love also has comfortable bras, tanks, and leggings. So whether you're getting ready for a wedding or an event or just want an everyday boost of confidence, Honey Love is absolutely something you should check out. So treat yourself to the best shapewear on the market and save 20% off by going to honeylove.com slash politicsgirl. Use our exclusive link to get 20% off at honeylove.com slash politicsgirl. Finally, I am so pleased to introduce Lumi. When Lumi approached us to do the show, I was like, 
Is that the deodorant for your whole body? Like your whole body? And it was. Lumi was created by an OBGYN who saw firsthand how normal body odor was being misdiagnosed and mistreated. So she developed a uniquely formulated pH balanced deodorant for pits, privates, and beyond. Lumi is aluminum free, skin safe, and clinically proven to control odor for up to 72 hours. And unlike other deodorants that try to mask odor with fragrance, Lumi is powered by mandelic acid to stop odor before it starts. So the whole thing is more of a pre-odorant than a deodorant. Lumi is safe to use anywhere on your body, from your belly button to your butt. I plan to use it on my teenage son's feet. Everyone might want to use it at the gym. Lumi is pH balanced for safe use below the belt and comes in a variety of fresh, bright scents like clean tangerine or lavender sage or toasted coconut. And Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It includes a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, and two free products of your choice, like a mini body wash or deodorant wipes, plus free shipping. As a special offer for our listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code POLITICSGIRL when they go to lumideodorant.com. That's the equivalent of over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumedeodorant.com and use the code POLITICSGIRL lumideodorant.com because let's face it our underarms are not the only place we have odor and we're back with jessica anderson running for the 71st district in the virginia house of delegates as i said before jessica is a first-time candidate who started just like i did as a dissatisfied citizen expressing herself online her TikTok presence is off the charts, but she wanted to take her community activism to the next level and run as a new kind of leader. I think people often forget that just because candidates have to play the game at certain levels of government, that doesn't mean we can't chip away at the edges until we break out of the box we've been stuck in for so long. The mother of three and stepmother of two, Jessica is a public school employee who's been outspoken in her advocacy for the needs of public schools in her state. Jessica is also a progressive activist for abortion rights, bodily autonomy, and the citizen's right to make our own medical decisions without government interference. So without further ado, please welcome my second guest, social media star, passionate warrior for democracy, and candidate for Virginia's 71st House District, Jessica Anderson. Welcome, Jess. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, thank you for joining me. I've been a big fan of yours for so long. You've been an outspoken advocate for everything from public education to gun safety to reproductive rights online as an influencer. But now you're taking that next step to go from influencing there to influencing in real life. So you're running for office. What inspired you to make this move? Um, so a catalysm of things. But um, basically, I have been online, obviously, for two and a half years, roughly since January 6th. I don't know something about that date. Um, but, you know, talking about all of the things that you mentioned, and just really trying to educate um, individuals about how important state and local and national politics are. But in addition to that, back in 2015, I went through my own struggles, um, dealt with uh, food insecurity and financial issues when I got divorced and found myself single with three daughters. And basically was navigating this really difficult system that for me, you know, I had a college degree, I, I you know, I, I had the ability to go back to the workforce. Um, but it was still something that I needed to get back on my feet. So one year after going back to work, I got a $5,000 pay increase. I'm like, great, my I'm bettering my situation. Lovely. And in exchange, the state said, Okay, well, now we're going to take away your $7,000 in food that you've been getting every year. So I was at a deficit, I actually lost $2,000. In fact, more than that, when you take into consideration taxes, all because I made my situation better. Um, so it was really eye-opening 
to kind of see that the system's not built to help people. Um, there's a lot of flaws and that there is sometimes an incentive to not improve your situation the way it's set up. Fast forward, I, I met married my now husband through the running community that I've been an active part of since 2012 and was in a better financial situation. I'm very fortunate in that respect. A lot of people don't have that option and they don't get that experience to get out of um, those financial struggles and got to you know, take a lower paying job working in the front office of a local public school, elementary school within the district. And I've been there going on six years this year. And again, it opened my eyes to other families having the same experiences I experienced, whether it was um, food insecurities, financial, you know, shortfalls, you know, infrastructure. And so when we moved into the world of COVID, it's like the floodgates opened. Um, uh, we had so many families had no access to Wi-Fi, had no safe, quiet space to actually do schoolwork online, doing Zooms. People that didn't have access to food. So these kids depended on school to get breakfast and lunch every day. And now that was gone. So all of these things collectively just continued to show me like we're not doing enough as a government, as a society to take care of the people that we're supposed to be taking care of. So after all of that and becoming very vocal online, as well as being more engaged in my, in my local community, um, I did a coalition basically online with Facebook, getting educators and parents organized to attend the school board meetings to kind of push back against the loud minority voices that started showing up during the pandemic. And we're trying to remove books from our school and, you know, at one point remove masks from our school when we still had a lot of children that were special needs. We had educators that were still at risk. We, you know, not everyone's vaccinated, the list goes on. So just trying to be a voice, um, writing letters to legislators, marching in regards to gun reform, marching in regards to protecting abortion rights, and, and meeting so many amazing people in the process. And so this past September, I said, I can do more and I can do it right here. So I threw my hat in the rink and decided to run for the House of Delegates seat here in the state of Virginia for the General Assembly. And the election is this November, which is fastly approaching. <laughs> I know. I mean, listen, like, as you say on your website, right? Like, you are not a politician. You're an everyday person yeah. who wants to advocate for your community, who has lived the life of your constituents, right? You're talking about you've worked in jobs, you know, you've worked in insurance, you've been a stay-at-home mom, you've been through a terrible divorce, you've had financial struggles, you worried about having to be able to afford life insurance and health insurance for your children, and you personally got to know the importance of these life-saving social safety net programs and the problems that go with those and how important public education is and what we're offering our children in school, all these things you've lived firsthand. And I think that you're kind of, to me, this next generation of politician, you know, which is really an old kind of concept, which is that our representatives should be of the people, familiar with the lives of the people they represent, not some elite privileged class who don't even have the remotely same concerns as the people that they're trying to represent. And and for the audience, I'd like to say this is kind of a reoccurring theme that I keep going back to, that Choosing the right people is essential because government really can be a force for good, run efficiently by people who care and understand what their constituents are going through. Government can actually help its citizens through the hard times. It can help its citizens get back to being productive members of society. Like you're saying, you got a, bo yeah. you got a, a bonus. You were like, oh, I'm making more money. But then you weren't making more money because you got um, your EBT taken away. These are things that we need to think through when we're discussing what kind of politicians we want, what kind of programs we want. And I think yeah. these things like social safety net programs and healthcare and making education affordable, those really improve the lives of not just Virginians, but all the people in America. And I think yeah. people have to remember that 
these programs that people like Republicans say are drains on the system are actually making much more effective members of society and ultimately better, more reliable taxpayers. Helping people actually makes you more money in the long run because the more successful and self-sufficient people are, they're not a drain on the system. They end up paying more in taxes. So it's a win-win, right? Which is- I think why you're running, you know, to kind of give back and to say, I've lived it, I've experienced it, and I want to help other people through it. And I know you're running on strengthening public education, protecting reproductive rights, enacting family care policies that you yourself have lived through, and of course, passing common sense gun reform. But let's talk about public education, right? Because you have, you have five children, you have three children of your own, two with your new husband, and Public education is clearly under attack in America right now. This isn't just a yes. Virginia issue, but we should definitely point out that Governor Youngkin really got elected coming out of the pandemic by leaning hard on the pandemic school closures and parents' rights and parents' choice, which led to what you're talking about with the book bannings. He's also announced a $150 million investment into new charter schools, which for those of us following this type of thing, no only ends up pulling money and resources away from local public schools. You work in the local public school system. What have you seen while you've been out there? And could you speak to that proposal for more charter schools? Or what do you believe we should be doing to shore up what most of us know is an essential institution, which is American public schools? Yeah, I mean, the reality is our public schools are serving a majority of our children. That's right. And the purpose purpose of these schools is to put out educated, well-rounded, critical thinking human beings that are going to, again, go out into society and be a benefit to that community again. Like we're trying to create the circle of life with our youth. And so when we acknowledge that reality, the the idea of things like school choice and school voucher bills that my opponent actually introduced this very past legislation in 2023, thankfully it died in committee, but I did some deep diving. I spoke to some legislative aides and I found out on the dollar, it would have removed roughly $5,000 per student per year from our state's funded budget for our district. So to give you an idea of what that looks like is 10 kids participate in that program. We've lost a teacher salary, but yet our class sizes can be 25 and up. So we haven't lost a class, but we've now lost the ability to pay an educator. If a hundred students participated out of our 11,000 student population, so we still have 10,900 students we have to service. We've lost 10 educator salaries and four classrooms. So when you really look at the dollar to dollar amount, not to mention, you can just look at any state throughout the nation that has implemented these same type of bills. They are at the bottom tier for education. I mean, West Virginia comes to mind. But, you know, so when when you acknowledge that, when you acknowledge that other states are doing it and we find that only a handful are actually benefiting it because the handful have the ability and the resources to match the vouchers and go to private institutions and have other options that majority of us do not have. I mean, even in my better financial situation, being remarried, et cetera, I can't afford nine dollars to $14,000 in the different set of these vouchers are going to cover to go to the local private schools in my division. Not to mention transportation. We have a lot of families that do not have cars. There's so many caveats that, that the people that are pushing for the school choice under that guise of, of, of option will not speak to in the reality of what, what it's really going to do. But to your point, yes, we are seeing a targeted attack on teachers. We see we saw a huge um, shift of teachers moving out of the field. VDOE is kind of a train wreck right now because of our governor. 
Um, there's really no direction or guidance. I don't know if you saw the first year, but his first, I guess, superintendent that he hired was removing MLK from history and you know, lost $201 million for our public schools and, and, and budget funding. And, you know, so, I mean, it, it hasn't been going well, but he's done a really good job of presenting as a moderate governor, keeping his true agenda close to his chest. And that worked for him. I mean, and it did. He was speaking to a group of people, to myself included, I didn't vote for him, but I felt disenfranchised as a parent after the pandemic. I saw the struggles that my kids experienced. We all did. So he did a very wise act as his campaign goes and governorship, but he's not actually offering us any real solutions as he's been in office. No, he's not. And honestly, in many ways, he's an absolute wolf in sheep's clothing. But if we're going to be talking yes. about public education, I mean, the thing is, is that you've been really clear for your candidacy that public education is crucial to the Commonwealth of Virginia. But I want to be very clear that public education is crucial to the well-being of the entire country. Like over the past 20 years, we've seen public education being dismantled piece by piece, financially and structurally with policies like no child left behind or standardized testing. And now what we're talking about, the rise of these kind of charter and religious schools getting taxpayer money. We've just talked about our teachers. They're under attack. Our curriculums are under attack. The books are being censored or removed. We have these horrible laws like don't say gay, dictating what students and teachers are allowed to talk about in school. And of course, we really just have to keep going back to the idea that getting money out of public schools and into charter and private schools it doesn't help the public schools at all. It doesn't make their their yeah. demands any less. And it's a backdoor solution to segregate kids away from others. Like if you want your kid to go to a particular type of school or be taught a particular thing in a particular way, then you choose private school or you choose to homeschool them. Our public school system was set up for every child to be able to attend, for every child to have access to good quality education because that serves yeah. the greater whole. And I think what's happened is we've become more and more minutiae onto what's best for me, what's best for my child specifically, as opposed to what's best for the greater good, right? Yeah. yeah. As with everything, it comes down to money, right? There's a finite amount of funds that we can pull from a system that is already underfunded and understaffed. And it only affects and impacts families that are using those schools. But ultimately, it's going to end up affecting the entire economy. If we don't educate the population well, it'll affect all of us. If you want to be strictly uh, economic about this, you're going to have less educated people, which means less high-paying jobs, less taxes. It's it's worse for the economy. So I think that that's what we need to focus on. And I I have to point to the fact we have $5.1 billion in overage in our state. I mean, we have a surplus that we can pull from to put funding into our education that right now Republicans are pushing back because they want to do more tax cuts, which we did a grocery tax repeal. We did a pretty significant tax cut last year, and that was bipartisan. Democrats and Republicans were both on board with those cuts to benefit everyday people to try to put a little extra dollars. But now we're in this new year. We just had a report by Jay Lark come out that kind of does a survey or, or a study on the financial means of our education system. And it came back saying we are severely underfunding our public education, that we have not redrafted back to the pre-recession 20, you know, 2008 uh, funding, and we need to get there and we need to get there fast. Some things that I really want to implement is I want to lower the maximum class sizes for our primary schools, K through fifth, to 15. Right now, we can have upwards of 20 to 25, depending on the grade level. We, we know that public private schools 
do well for a lot of instances because they have smaller class sizes. You have a more one-on-one experience. That is something that we have data that shows this is a provable thing that we could do. Also would incentivize more educator jobs, as well as the fact that I would like to see universal three and four-year-olds for pre-K, a free program that's insulated by this the government, by the state. That means that we're opening a job force for people that do not need four-year degrees to do pre-K. We're also allowing families to re- join the workforce because they're no longer paying astronomical fees for childcare. And they have the ability to have the option, like, I want to go out and work. I want to make more money. I want to spend more money. So these are things that benefit our children, giving them a foundational, you know, footing for, for public school, but it's also benefiting our economy in the long run. And it's like, it, it seems so simple. And yet <laughs> when and we yet. talk about it, <laughs> yeah, and yet um, there's so much, you know, argument around it. Yeah, I know. It just seems crazy because it seems like common sense solutions, right? And I think that's the thing is that your governor sets himself up as like the common sense solution centrist type guy. And yet they don't take any of those common sense solutions and put it to work, right? Danica and I were talking before the break about Governor Youngkin and how he's looking to take over full control of the state legislature. His hands have really been tied by the Democrats in the Senate. But if he gets the majority in the House and the Senate, those gloves will be off. And top of mind for me, if we move away from education is, of course, your citizen's right to an abortion, right? Youngkin likes to present himself like this Mm -hmm. moderate. But as you've pointed out in many of your videos, as we've talked about here, he's actually anything but. He's been caught on tape saying his plan is to completely defund Planned Parenthood. He just couldn't say that out loud, right? He had to win independent voters and pretend he wasn't going to strip people of their rights. But cut into power, I definitely will, you know? Like, this is what we're dealing with right now. And obviously, you're mm-hmm. a vocal advocate for reproductive rights. You don't have to be a woman or a mom or a stepmom to realize how important it is for women to be unburdened by government control of their health care. But at the very least, our children should have the same access to the health care we had growing up. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I do have three daughters so and, and four, as I have a bonus daughter as well. But so to that point, it is incredibly important to me because I know this is legislation that could directly impact them in the future. So it, it affects all of us is, is, the, is the bottom line. I mean, and healthcare access as a whole and having it restricted affects all of us. You know, I, I like to point to the fact that Youngkin does like to, to tote the 15-week ban. And he does that because it plays back into this moderate perception to the public. But what he doesn't talk about and what I've tried to bring attention to is let's a ban is a ban. Like, let's just be honest. However, 15 weeks in the state of Virginia after 15 weeks represents 2.5% of our abortions total. And of those 2.5% almost always are because of the life of the mother. So a detrimental decision or non-viable pregnancies that are going to terminate once outside the womb. And this is again, a decision that a family is making with a healthcare provider that is one of the toughest decisions of their lives. In other words, this 2.5% had every intention of bringing a child home at the end of this pregnancy. Why are we creating bureaucratic red tape and tying the hands of healthcare providers, putting them in a situation where they hesitate, where they put our you know patients in danger? We've seen evidence from Texas. We know it's a reality. So why are we doing that? And, and that's a question that I would love someone to ask Youngkin. I would love someone to ask my opponent. She's done a podcast as well and, and said the same kind of language. Well, we need something in the middle. We can meet in the middle. No, there, there's no middle ground when we're putting stipulations and hog tying healthcare providers from doing what they need to do. 
Period. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. You're either believing in bodily autonomy or you believe in government control, right? There isn't really middle ground here. Roe actually was the compromise <laughs> and they got exactly. rid of it, right? So now we have this, a ban, a six-week ban is a 15-week ban. A ban is a ban is a ban. At the end of the day, we need to ask whose body is it? It's your body, right? Yeah. So what you choose to do with your body should be your choice. If we are a land of freedom, that is what we should be getting behind. So whether you require abortion or you choose gender affirming care or you want to make end of life decisions or get a freaking nose job, right? There's no one else's choice but yours. Whose body? Right. It's your body. And I think we need to be really clear that a Republican House and Senate in Virginia would absolutely disagree with that statement. And we simply can't allow that to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we have the rule of we have the rule of row here. Like that is the law of the land already in the state of Virginia. It says it on the books in third trimester. You have to have like right now you have to have three doctors on the scene to agree that it is medically necessary to move forward with an abortion once you've exceeded that, you know, 24 or 23 mark, 23 week mark. And on top of that, there's rural areas that don't even have three doctors. So we're we still have a risk even with that, you know, that people are going to have to wait to ensure that they have the right number of doctors on the scene to say, yes, move forward. So it, it's just the realization that again, this is, this is a ban. It's, it, it's a ban, no matter how you, how you put it, it's, it's not moderate. It is infringing on our bodily autonomy rights. Yeah. And you, like all the Democrats right now running across the country, believe that lawmakers have no place in those personal decisions and legislators don't belong in our doctor's office or putting, as you said, our healthcare workers at risk or in legal danger, right? Which is why we need yeah. to hold the Democratic Senate and flip the House in Virginia. The Republicans know that their policies and their positions aren't popular, so they're coming out with endless money and lies to keep and expand their power. As I understand it, Governor Youngkin has actually put a target on your back, right? Talking about you on Fox <coughs> News for being some sort of mascot for the woke left. I mean, that must feel kind of <laughs> overwhelming to be targeted like that, because at the end of the day, you're just a concerned parent and a citizen who decided to stand up and try and help her community. Yeah, it's it was uh, it was interesting. Uh, there was apparently roughly a six figure tube ad taken out with roughly six figures back in March, which we're talking March, like it's we're nowhere near the election, um, and kind of painting me as like the face of the party, and um, and also trying to paint me as an anti parent. And I'm like, I'm a parent, um, so it was it was it was really interesting. Um, but for me, it, it sets a tone. This is a this is a district that went from um, strong Republican, roughly a 58, 42 uh, percentage to now a 52, 48 lean Republican. However, my opponent has never gotten 58 percent of the vote. She got 53 in 2019. She got 55 in 2021. So when she couldn't even reach the, the cusp of the 58 that they had guarded this district previously as, where does that leave her now when it's a 52? It's a 50-50. My governor knows it. My lieutenant governor knows it. My G attorney general knows it because all three of them had have either come out here or are planning to come out here to host an event for her. <laughs> so they're dropping money. They're making themselves present. They're pushing this moderate language and, and you know messaging because they know that if they have to actually speak to the issues, um, they, they have nothing to run on. I mean, just so people know, uh, Jess's opponent is a woman named Amanda Batten, and she tells people she's basically a libertarian, but she's actually a House Republican cheerleader. And much like Youngkin himself, who kind of kept Trump at arm's length during his election and ran it as moderate in his fleece vest, these Republican representatives in Virginia are presenting themselves as these centrists, these kind of like 
casual, easygoing guys just looking for common sense solution when in reality, as I said earlier in the show, they would be very happy to turn Virginia into Florida if they were given a chance. So we really cannot give them a chance, right? The Democrats have to dominate in Virginia to set the tone going into 2024. We have to show the country with this election that these extreme positions the Republicans are taking everywhere in every state from Virginia to Oklahoma are not winning issues. Um, So tell us how we can help you win the 71st district and win back the Virginia House. Yes, absolutely. So um, I am the number one small dollar donor recipient of the state, which I'm super proud of. I have over... I know. Um, I have over 5,100 unique donors, which is unheard of for a state race. Um, I think the only one that I had cannot rival, of course, is Danica Rome in her first year running. She did well, we 30,000. Right I know. You. I know. <laughs> um, but she's, she's, you know, she's done, you know, she's also been amazing in fundraising. So fundraising is critical. It, it just really is. I am running against a two-time incumbent. I am running against someone who has the governor himself in her pocket, as well as um, Dominion Energy, who has donated $100,000 to her campaign to be competitive against my small dollar donors. Um, so it, it's it's the reality of the situation when running for office. It's something I'd like to see changed in campaign finance reform once I get into office. But where we are right now, um, money is how you do your messaging, how you connect with a lot of voters outside of the countless door knocking and phone calls, etc. Um, so go to my website. It is www.jessicaanderson4forva.com. Um, you can also do J-E-S-S number four VA.com. Um, all of my socials are there in the top and bottom of there. Uh, all of the volunteer opportunities, my act blue link is there. Um, all of my platforms and just really kind of going into detail of where I stand and why I stand there is there. So yeah, it's, it's the perfect resource for a one-stop shop. That's wonderful. I want to thank you for joining us today, Jessica. We need you to win so you can hold back those Republicans' worst interests, but also because we need more representatives like you in government. I mean, you're you're a regular person looking out for regular people, right? But you're also endorsed by everyone from like Emily's List of Planned Parenthood <laughs> and Mayroll to the regional county, you know, Council of Carpenters, right? So like you are both an establishment and an anti-establishment candidate and you're a real person who's lived a real life yeah. and wants to stand up for real people. And we can't ask anything more from our representatives than that. So I wish you the best of luck. I and I really that. hope people will go to your website and donate to your campaign because we really need to take these guys out at the knees. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. So that was Danica Rome and Jessica Anderson talking to us about their important candidacies in the most important race in the country right now. Virginia is the next big election to win. It's the opportunity to give the Republican Party and their abortion-restricting, book-banning, voter-suppressing, soft supremacy the double middle finger to make them afraid, not concerned, not worried, afraid, to give them a preview of the 2024 election in frickin' Technicolor. We did it in Wisconsin, we did it in Ohio, and now we'll wrap it up in a great big bow with Virginia. I wanna thank Danica and Jess for joining us today and you for caring enough about democracy to be here. Now send these ladies some money and make the extremists cry. Until next week, PG out. The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.